0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. If you've been a longtime listener of the show, you know that this started as Creedal Catholic, and I changed it about a year ago to be just Creedal. The reason I did that is not because I was shying away from its Catholic identity. In fact, far from it. The reason I did it is because I wanted to take a step back, broaden the aperture, and ask questions about how our faith, our Catholic faith, informs or should inform the way we interact in the world around us which is really about culture. So what books do we read? What movies do we watch? What political candidates do we vote for? With whom do we spend our time? How do we interact with our neighbor? What jobs should we pursue? How do I invest my money? To what businesses should I give my business? How do I educate my children? These are all really critical questions that my wife and I are trying to answer every day, especially especially as we raise our own children. And I think they're questions that most Catholics wrestle with, uh, and those who don't probably should. And so I want to have a podcast that helps people answer those questions and think about those ideas in compelling and hopefully interesting and insightful ways. So as the first step towards that, I'm inviting Andrew on to talk about these topics with me. We're, we're going to be doing a weekly show. I'm really excited about it. It'll be a mix of lighthearted and serious, but hopefully always engaging. And we'll, we'll break it up into different segments and hopefully just keep it fresh so that every week you look forward to it and we don't repeat ourselves. But uh, if you've been listening to the show for any, any, any length of time, longer than I think six months, you'll recognize Andrew as someone who's been on before, mostly to do film criticism because he and I share an interest in film, but he's a certainly, certainly a, a, a more experienced critic than I am. Uh, but he's been someone who's a really insightful uh, character. And uh, who I've always enjoyed speaking with, we've struck up a friendship uh, after the first time he had him, I had him on my podcast. Uh, so we've become pretty close. Um, he also shares a background uh, studying in Oxford. He was a Marshall scholar uh, in in Oxford a few years before uh, I was there, and so we have a, we have a common background in that way as well. If you want to hear more about Andrew's backstory, you can go check out my very first episode with him, where he describes his journey uh, once as an Anglican priest and then a Catholic convert. He is now the uh, Venerable Fulton Sheen Fellow of Popular Culture at the World on Fire Institute and uh, and a rising star in his own right, but I'm really excited to, uh, to bring him on and uh, do this weekly show with him. So without further ado, let's get started. Andrew, welcome back to the show. How are you on this fine day? I have to imagine it is an incredibly hot and muggy day in Dallas where I think you find yourself today.
1: I am good, Zach. Yeah, it is the dog days of summer here in Dallas where I am. We've had so many days above 100 degrees and uh, looking forward actually to fall, even though I'm a big summer guy, but you know, I've had enough.
0: Now you came to Dallas from Nashville in your experience. Are the Dallas summers, uh, significantly worse than Nashville summers?
1: Oh yes. Okay. Yeah. It's hot in Nashville, but uh, it is, uh, it's it's a different ballpark down here for sure.
0: Everything's bigger and hotter in Texas, as they say.
1: Everything is bigger in Texas. You <laughs> nice. got it.
0: Well, I'm super pumped to have you back on the show. Uh, you and I have been, been sort of hatching this idea for a while. Uh, to my listeners, this will be brand new because I've not announced this previously. I've, I've teased it a couple times that I'll be doing something with you. But the plan is to do a weekly show. That will be maybe a little bit edgier than our typical creedal fair. and we'll we'll comment on contemporary events, and we'll do sort of deep dives into uh, kind of longer think pieces, and have uh, have what I hope are fruitful and nuanced discussions about the issues of our time. Uh, we're going to kind of preview or show you uh, our our um, our structure for these, and so we've got some some I think kind of fun segments to break up the discussion, and this will be changing over time as well. So we have a few more ideas to add to this as we go along. Uh, but definitely let us know what you think. You can send emails to the, the email I always use, Zach at creedlepodcast.com. We've also set up a new mailbox, Zach and Andrew at Creedlepodcast.com. So you can use either of those uh, ones to send us some feedback or listener questions, suggestions for things to talk about in the future. All of that's fair game. We'd love to love to hear from you. So definitely look forward to, um, to more weekly discussions like this. I know I definitely am. And uh, without further ado, we can uh, we can get off and get started with our first segment, which is going to be called misinformation. Now, uh, Andrew and I were talking about this uh, last night about what to call the segment. It's a little bit provocative because uh, misinformation is is not a good thing, and it's a, it's a term that's uh, often thrown around these days. But I think it's fitting to be a little bit a little bit edgy, a little bit provocative. Uh, and the idea of this segment is to go through um, this week. It'll be me quizzing Andrew. Uh, next week, perhaps Andrew quizzing me. But the idea is to go through uh, several. Different storylines, and uh, have the other person pick out the misinformation. So, in other words, what is fake news, and what is real news? This is uh called misinformation. Andrew, are you ready to go in our our inaugural round of misinformation?
1: Let's do it, Zach. I have uh, a good feeling that I can spot these. Let's see.
0: You know, I think you can too. Probably, we need to we need to figure out how to mitigate uh, this. You, I think you have a leg up on like the average listener because you and I are both pretty active on Twitter there's probably significant overlap on the people we follow and the people who follow us and we follow each other. So I've, I've tweeted about some of these already. And if you've, if you've seen my tweets, then you'll probably have a good, a good, uh, understanding of sort of what is real and what is not, but, but we'll see, maybe, you maybe you've been uh, off of Twitter more this week, working on your own holiness, like I should be doing instead of being on Twitter. Uh, and so maybe, uh, maybe you won't spot these so easily, but we'll see. You ready to go? Let's do it. Okay. Misinformation item one. Is this real or is this fake? Fake news or real news? Andrew, we've talked about the Uvalde. Uh, in private conversation, we talked about the Uvalde uh, massacre and, and the failures of the police there. Is it a true news story that while loitering in the Uvalde police, uh, in the Uvalde Elementary School, a police officer wearing a ballistic vest found enough time while standing in the hallway waiting to uh, confront the shooter uh, that he found time to squirt hand sanitizer from a dispenser in the hallway and rub the hand sanitizer on his hands. Fake news or real news?
1: Ooh, I want to say this is real news, Zach. I I, I think it's sad, but true. Although I know you've had your finger on the pulse of this story a lot uh, stronger than I have, but uh, I'm going to say true on this one.
0: This is in fact true. This is not fake news. This is a real thing. Uh, and I can drop a, a link to the video in the show notes if you just want to see this. And this is really disheartening to me. When I So the timeline on my sort of evolution of the uh, or my thinking on the Uvalde stuff. Uh, Andrew, you know, I wrote a long piece about this. Um, Uvalde and the Death of Courage, uh, I think I called it. Uh, and it was really about what I think is the sort of systematic failings of the police department on that day and how they really go back to um, to our societal inability to train people to have conviction. And I think this lack of conviction is reflected across industries, across uh, sectors, and it's maybe most evident in the police force and the military, but it's, I think we can see signs of it everywhere. Um, now, I got several pieces of feedback from that, um, that article. And one of the pieces of feedback that I took most seriously was, hey, I think you jumped the gun here and jumped to conclusions. I don't think the evidence is quite there to support that this is this is about cowardice. I think maybe this is about like, you know, systematic institutional shortcomings, etc. Uh, perhaps gross incompetence, but but maybe not cowardice. And I think that's that's probably a fair criticism of the piece, given the facts that I knew at the time. I think I probably was making some sort of a leap, but but sadly, every piece of information that's come out since I wrote the piece has, I think, actually added more evidence to the uh, you know gross cowardice side of the argument, in addition to the reckless incompetent side. Uh, but this is this is certainly one that I would put in the category of evidence for um, for cowardice. I even had this throwaway line. Uh, I, I had this line in my piece that said. Um, with this level of conviction, I'm surprised that the officers weren't storming the school wearing, you know, KN95 masks, um, which is just a a slight variation of the officer, you know, stopping from confronting the shooter to get some hand sanitizer on his hands. So sadly, you're correct. This is a true story. All right. You'll probably get this one as well. Um, I shouldn't do that. That might indicate that it's real. But uh, is it true or false, real news or fake news that... uh Uh, Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States recently started a meeting by declaring her pronouns and describing the color suit that she was wearing.
1: Okay. This is an interesting story to me, Zach. I, this is true, but I have, I have a few things to say about this. Uh Yeah. Everybody was just amazed and not at the same time, right? That Kamala Harris sat down and she had a mask on and she introduced herself with her pronouns and then said, I'm the one wearing the, the blue suit at the end of the table. And a lot of people sort of had a good laugh about that on the internet and all of that, including myself. But then there was this kind of, you know, this sort of aha moment where people were saying, well, actually she's talking to disabled people. And the reason that she's describing herself that way is that there are blind people at the table. And I, and I, my first reaction was to think, oh, well, okay, it's still kind of weird, but whatever. And then I kind of thought, wait, 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 wait. It actually makes it weirder. Because why, if there are blind people at the table, is she bothering to describe the color of her jacket? Yep. So to me, it was just a big head scratcher, but it is true.
0: It is indeed true. Uh, so I, I have also multiple thoughts on this. I think the honestly, the, the worst part of this story is not the blue suit comment. I, I do get that. It's like the alt image caption that you see on some applications for people who are visually impaired uh or even totally blind and use an assistive you know text reader to understand you know it, it's a the alt image caption is what describes the image if you can't actually see the image totally get that that's analogous to what kamala is doing here uh the more disturbing thing to me is the pronouns issue right <laughs> that the vice president of the united states thinks it appropriate to start off a meeting uh, and i think right before that she says we're here to confront some of the most pressing issues of our time and then she follows up with, my name is Kamala Harris. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. And like the juxtaposition of those two phrases was just downright comical. Uh, and I mean, you really can't make this stuff up, uh, which is why it is in the category of real news. Uh, as far as the like, I'm a I'm a woman in a blue suit at the end of the table. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know how that makes a difference for blind people. The other thing is, why is she wearing a mask uh, if this is if 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 the intention here is to make it easier for Americans with disabilities to understand what she's saying, because I know people who are hard of hearing and rely on lip reading to understand what's being said. And so wearing a mask makes that obviously a lot harder um, to do. So this is a very, very strange story and very bizarre. All right. Real news or fake news for this next one? Um, Kamala Harris, vice president of the United States, once again, uh, recently said, women are getting pregnant every day in America. And this is a real issue. And we need to act with a sense of haste. Real or real or fake?
1: Oh boy, I'm going to guess real again, and uh, and I'm going to uh, to to couch my answer in uh, pointing to the fact that this might be a a moment of some kind of hypocrisy or ambiguity with regard to our discourse about what is a woman and who can get pregnant. And perhaps also attached to the issue of the uh, the Dobbs decision now, and and people, you know, asking questions about women's health and all of these sorts of things. So, I am going to say this one also is true, and uh, and and creates some problems.
0: You are once again correct, Andrew. Batting one hundred percent so far. This is true, uh, and you're right. I mean, I thought we, I thought first of all, it was transphobic to say that. It wasn't just women who could get pregnant and not a woman can get pregnant. But here is Kamala apparently making this exclusively about women. I mean, how dare she, right? Uh, Right. But yes, uh, this also speaks to a broader issue, Andrew, um, with pregnancy being viewed as a pathology. And uh, in our current discourse, the one in which uh, the worst thing you could possibly do is prevent uh, or make illegal the act of an abortion. Uh, In that discourse, the dominant idea is that pregnancy is, in fact, a pathology Uh, Or the pathology of the pregnancy is determined only by whether or not that pregnancy is desired, which is a very strange thing to do, Uh, a very strange way to conceptualize anything. But it does sort of make sense in our world in which our desires and our self-identification determine reality, right? So it is logically consistent uh, internally, although certainly not externally. It's logically consistent to say, if I think of myself as a woman, despite all physical evidence to the contrary, uh, then also it makes sense that I can think of this thing in my uterus as a pathology or a disease if I determine that it is that, because my my identification actually determines reality. But yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. And then we get the contortion of words like care, right, to describe what is, what is done to this thing that you describe as something undesirable, you know? I also think, you know, it's weird, Zach, I don't know if you found this in, in your situation uh, so far in your in your life uh, with your wife having children and that kind of thing. But something that I found really odd when when my wife was having our children was just the kind of, you know, of course, there are all kinds of risks associated with pregnancy. And there are all kinds of real medical things that that need to be taken into consideration. But the thing that I always found was kind of weird is that a woman who's pregnant is sort of like automatically treated like a sick person you know so uh, rather than somebody who's just doing a perfectly natural normal thing that that she and she alone is is in a sense called to to be able to do so i don't know we've got a lot of confusion going around in the world today with regard to some of these these issues of of uh, femininity being a woman having babies all of these kinds of questions
0: yeah we we definitely do and uh Listeners should look forward to a discussion with a, an upcoming creedal guest on some of those various issues, but that's all I will, all I will tease so far. Um, all right. Item number four, again, you're batting, batting a hundred so far, Andrew, let's see if you can get this one. Item number four, a Portland restaurant has developed an innovative way to combat racism by deciding to offer separate dining areas in its restaurant for white people and people of color respectively, so that the latter group can feel like they are dining in a safe space. Is that real news or fake news?
1: Oof, man, I, I'm just going to say for the sake of, of hope that it's fake news, although I have heard I have heard, Zach, that universities do now have, um, you know, uh, different orientation sessions for yeah. different races and maybe even separate like uh, accommodations and that kind of thing. But I'm just really hoping that in the public square we still haven't haven't reached this this kind of crisis yet.
0: That you are correct. Uh, that is in fact fake news. I do think it's important to point out, though, this was something that was being circulated on Twitter as if it was real, uh, and I did look into it and found that that was a even the author of the original tweet itself was was he admitted that this was a parody tweet, um, but. Uh, it caught my eye precisely because of what you said that I have heard of schools in particular doing this having separate orientation sessions or you know separate test administration sessions or class offerings or whatever um you know one for you know uh, white people and one for people of color so, should they choose to do so so not not necessarily enforce segregation but you know offering segregated options for uh, attending certain educational events so uh, I think we're not far from something like this happening uh which would of course not make it any less idiotic but uh in this case it is in fact false um and i i know of at least one i know at least one person personally who shared that thinking it was true so i do think it's important to correct the record that that is not in fact true uh but it is believable i mean this is where i think the difficulty in distinguishing parody from reality andrew gets really really difficult okay uh number five the new york times profiles a sex writer and in this uh, article profiling this sex writer the author the essayist uh, who is doing the profiling is recalling a time when she's looking at a book about sex for young children and she laments that all the different kinds of couples did fun things together with their clothes on but only the man and woman in the previous chapter got to take their clothes off and that was her complaint about a children's book on sexuality is this real or is this contrived
1: Oh, my goodness. Where to begin? What is a sex writer? I'd like to know uh, as a category of writer. But uh, gosh, that's a tough one, Zach. I I'm going to say that one is true. Also,
0: that is, in fact, true. Yes. Oh, this gosh. this is uh, from The New York Times, the the magazine, the New York Times magazine. The article is called The Books About Sex That Every Family Should Read, because what what normal, healthy family, Andrew, just doesn't read books about sex together that's i mean sure. <laughs> uh and this the the author who is profiled by the way sex author is my description of this person because i think there's probably no no more apt description uh for what this person does but the author's name is Corey silverberg uh and the uh the article says that Corey bucks decades of conventional wisdom on how to teach kids about intimacy if there's one thing that should throw a red flag it is bucking conventional wisdom about teaching children intimacy you know uh But let's see here we are um one thing that did catch my mind is we i think we often find ourselves in this place where we're expecting that um every person's ideas are equally valid as long as they are in line with the sort of majority progressive opinion of the day and this person the article looks like actually describes him as sex educator so not sex author but sex educator corey silverberg uh this person corey uh sounds like they've had a very very hard life there's a part of the author or part of the the, uh, article that was talking about this person's background and says that um, Corey was 17 uh, and his father was a sex therapist and his father found a job for his son. Again, then age 17, his first job working as a clerk at a store called Lovecraft, which was the first sex toy store in North America owned by women, gender equality owned by (laughs) the first one owned by women, Andrew. And so from, from basically the age of, well, growing up, this child's father was a sex therapist. And then from the age of 17, he worked at a uh, sex toy store and then talks about how his views on sex were just very confused. But now we look at this person, not we as in you and me, but the New York Times Magazine looks at this person as an authority on how to teach children about sex. I mean, isn't that like the most backwards thing you can possibly think of?
1: Oh, my goodness. I My heart is filled with such pity for this person. Uh, but the pity quickly gives way to, to anger when yeah. I realize this person is, you know, in a position to, to influence in elite circles in ways that affects, you know, affect children. So my goodness, yeah. what a, I wish that story weren't true. I know that one's a, that
0: one's a tough one. I was at the library yesterday and <clears throat> I often think, um, let me, let me correct myself. I often thought, uh, you know, as recently as six months ago, I thought, this um, this like sex trans stuff coming for the children, trying to teach it to our children. This is not really going to ever affect me. This is limited to very certain corners of the U.S., like Massachusetts and Los Angeles, and public libraries there. And I'll never have to deal with this. Uh, this is all just a distraction and like you know a a a controversy invented by right wing Twitter. I was at the library yesterday in you know suburban Chicago, and found this book called. What was it called? I think it was called like, what are my, what are your words or something? I took some screenshots of the picture itself. And the entire book is basically this child trying to learn his or her pronouns. It's not clear what, uh, what sex this child is, but this child has an uncle uh, who uses they, them pronouns and is teaching um, his or her ne- nephew or niece about words and how you can just choose your own words. And then there's, there's this person in the book who's a Zzer. And if this child is just an angst, this whole book, because, you know, I don't know my own words. I don't I don't know what feels best to use. And then at the end, they use they them pronouns, uh, you know, which end up matching their uncle's they them pronouns. Uh, But the whole book Mm is designed as a celebration of finding your words. But really, it's a um, it gives away the game, I think, and just shows how devastating it is to sow so much doubt in a young child's mind and uh and create chaos where there should be order and there would otherwise be order if you weren't in, you know deliberately instilling chaos
1: yeah I, I hate to you know I, I hate to to be negative but it, it's everywhere and and I've been wrestling with the same thing myself. I'm going all the way back to you remember the infamous uh drag queen story hour thing that created right. the whole kerfuffle between Sora Bamari and David <laughs> yes, French and yes. all of that sort of thing right yep. and um I, you know i I really think that, whatever you think of Saurabh Amari, he was, he was right. I, yeah, he was really right about, about that back then. And, um, it, it really is so, so pervasive. It's, uh, really tough to navigate.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And in, in a future episode, we should talk about that, uh, Saurabh Amari versus David French, um, kerfuffle, because I think that's definitely a, a worthwhile one and has proven proven to be prescient. I think as we've gone, you know, what was that two years ago that that peak, maybe a year ago?
1: something like that. But it has really proved to be a a watershed moment. I think um, that I think is, is positioning people with kind of different strategies in mind. Uh, You know, it it just, it is just not something that can be ignored. It's not something that can just be sort of, well, that's just in particular circumstances or something like that. Totally agree. Difficult.
0: Let's stay on the New York times topic for our second to last misinformation question, Andrew, is this fake news or real news? The New York Times celebrates can- cannibalism narratives in film and literature as a victory against social injustice, capitalism, gender equality, and climate change. Is that real news or fake news?
1: How could that possibly be real? I'm going to say it has it has to be fake.
0: Zach, uh, you you might be tempted to think that Andrew, but this is actually this is actually real. Now I may have uh, I may have I may have overstated it just overstated it just a tad. But let me read to you an excerpt from this article the article is again in the New York times, uh, talking about this spate of cannibalism narratives in, in literature. And there's a show coming out about cannibalism and it's basically saying like, what's, what's all this about why cannibalism, why cannibalism now? Uh, so one of these authors' names, uh, her last name is Summers. So the, the article says, for Miss Summers herself, the plot of A Certain Hunger, which is her book about cannibalism, can't be uncoupled, quote, from my own personal experiences with disordered eating, with the tamping down of feminine appetites, the way the media chews up and spits out writers, bougie consumption and bougie lady consumption, she said. <laughs> and the article continues, more generally, Miss Summers thinks that the recent spate of cannibalistic plots could also be commentaries on capitalism, quote, Cannibalism is about consumption, and it's about burning up from the inside in order to exist, she said. Con- the quote continues. Burnout is essentially over-consuming yourself, your own energy, your own will to survive, your sleep schedule, your eating schedule, your body. End quote. Miss Moshva, another, art- another author, said her theory was, quote, that it might be an antidote to the actual horror of what's happening to the planet. <laughs> there we Interesting. Go. Yeah.
1: Well, this... I have to admit to you, what you've just read to me does actually put my mind slightly, ever so slightly at ease because I was under the assumption that you, in the first go-round, that you were implying... There were positive portrayals of cannibalism, or, or that cannibalism was a kind of lifestyle choice that we needed to accept, right? Or or or, or at least kind of wrap our heads around, you know, just in the in at the, least consider of like, at least consider, right? I mean, in the tradition of how we think of villains now, right? As long as if you could just know the origin yeah. story, then they're not really villains anymore, or something like that. But there is this so line in what here. You're saying is,
0: yeah, the, the, go ahead. that that is true. It's not it's not quite it's not quite that bad. But there is this line in here. They're talking to a Ms. Lyle, who is a one of the, she is a showrunner or an author. I forget what her role is but she says um that since the pandemic or because of the pandemic and climate change and school shootings and years of political cacophony uh she says i feel like the unthinkable has become the thinkable and cannibalism is very much squarely in that category of the unthinkable in other words that which has now become thinkable so uh yeah we're, maybe we're just like a year away from what you described andrew but we'll see
1: well <laughs> Even as a metaphor for you know the supposedly bad things in this world, cannibalism yes. is a little. I mean, you know, there have been he- here and there cannibalism plot lines, and you know, there was that movie Alive several years ago about yep. a true story of a of a team that crashed its plane, and you know, there there here and there it pops up, but it is really not something most people want to think about in my in my judgment. Yeah. Anyway,
0: I agree. Uh, yeah, it's not to say that there's like, there's nothing, it's not to say that cannibalism can never be a, a method of incisive commentary or that it ever, that it never has been. Of course, that would be silly, but, um, it is, uh, it is rather ridiculous to take these sort of trite examples of bad modern literature and then pretend that they are some profound commentary on some existential challenge. Um, and very ridiculous, especially to say that it's about climate change. I mean, come on, come on. All right. That's the first one you missed, Andrew, but I I might have sensationalized the summary just a little bit. So maybe you could have credit. Uh, All right. The the final one. uh, Fake news or real news? Volodymyr and Elena Zelensky, who are, of course, the president and first lady of Ukraine, respectively, took a break from the war in their country to pose for a Vanity Fair cover shoot. Is that real news or fake news?
1: As far as I know, this is true, and I don't know what more to say about it except <laughs> except that it's true that this is- the president and his and his wife in a, in a war zone are, you know, taking time to have their pictures made.
0: That is, in fact, true, Andrew. Yeah, I also don't have a whole lot more to say on that, but it is true. So you batted six and a half out of seven. Can't do the mental math in my head, but that is a pretty darn good batting percentage. So well done. That's it for misinformation.
1: All right. I'll start digging up some for you for next week.
0: That <laughs> sounds good. Uh, I think that was a fun segment. Uh, let's go to our next segment, which is called Close Reads. And in Close Reads, we're going to look at one article, or maybe book, uh, per week and just discuss it in a slightly more uh, in-depth conversation. So um, for the for this week, the show, the link is in the show notes, but the article is called Everything is Broken and How to Fix It by uh, Alana Newhouse could be Elena Newhouse. I've, I've heard that name pronounced in both ways, but, um, Alana Newhouse is, uh, writing this in tablet magazine. Uh, and this was actually written in January, 2021. So we're, you know, 18 months out of date, but I think it's important sometimes to not be super reactive and just respond to the stuff that was written yesterday, Andrew, but to, uh, to reflect on stuff that was written, you know, maybe 18 months ago, maybe hundreds of years ago, because, uh, they, those can be more enlightening to our current moment anyway.
1: Yeah. I'm really glad that you brought this article uh, forward for us to consider because I had not read it before. I had not; I was not familiar with Alana Newhouse's work, but um, I really hope that our listeners will take the time to go and read it for themselves. But I'm looking forward to talking about it with you because as we discussed just kind of offline very briefly, it it contains so many things that I think a lot of us just, it, it's only becoming clearer. It's only becoming kind of more Uh, More self-evident that, especially when we consider kind of expertise and the the role of the elites and just kind of our faith in institutions and that sort of thing, all of that stuff just seems to be um, falling apart more and more and more. So I think um, Newhouse does a really a really great job here, um, inviting us into how to think about this world from a personal perspective. From her own, uh, begins with her own. Um, experience um, giving birth and having some really um, almost like kind of intuitive, like almost like an intuition that something wasn't right, and and yet just finding every place she turned in the kind of medical context she was in, she just was kind of you know turned away, and I, I just I I really felt for her just in the first couple of paragraphs, this the the opening of this piece that ends up becoming much more elaborate, but I think it's such a strong piece because. All of us, or at least most of us, I, mm-hmm. I certainly felt this way, can relate to this kind of feeling. Not, yes. not necessarily in the context of a childbirth situation, but something happens in your life where you're like, "This is just not right." Mm-hmm. And you know, you kind of look around, you sort of look to the experts, or you wonder, like, "Shouldn't this be like that?" And and there's just really no answers that anybody can provide for you. And you have enough of those layered on top of each other, and it just starts to really chip away at you're feeling that you can, that you can trust experts that you can kind of turn to, you know, the consensus view, the, the kind of, you know, the bedrock that everybody is supposed to kind of put everything, rest on everything upon. You just sort of start to feel like maybe I can't do that anymore. And I don't know about you, Zach, but it feels like more and more of us in the world are feeling like that about more and more things that we, that we have to do, you know?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, let's maybe recap the article just real quick for people who haven't had the time to uh, take a look at it Uh, i think that may be helpful for folks the um as as you said andrew it starts with this sort of personal anecdote of a a medical journey and this um alana and her husband and their son were on this medical journey he was born in 2014 Everyone said he's perfectly healthy. She just felt like something was not not right, and basically, she ended up being very correct. She doesn't. I mean, it's. I think it's. A, it's nice. She appreciates her son's privacy and does not go into details on what was wrong. But there's. There was something wrong, and then she said this would take him year, years to heal from. So it took them years to diagnose, and it'll take him years to heal from it. And um, they had a conversation with a neuro uh, psychiatrist or just a psychiatrist, I think, named Norman Deutsch, Um, he's written several popular books on um on the brain's neurochemistry. I think one of them he wrote uh, was called Your Brain on Porn. And he talked about the just devastating effects of pornography on the brain and the brain's chemistry. Um, but so they sit down with with Norman Deutsch and basically tell him their story and basically say like, how did how did the medical system uh, miss this? And he says, um, quoting directly now, I don't know how else to tell you this, but bluntly, there are still many good individuals involved in medicine, but the American medical system is profoundly broken. When you look at the rate of medical error, it's now the third leading cause of death in the US. The over-medication, creation of addiction, the quick fix mentality, not funding the poor, quotas to admit from ERs, needless operations, the monetization of illness versus health, the monetization of side effects, a peer review system run by journals paid for by big pharma, the destruction of the health of doctors and nurses themselves by administrators who demand that they rush through 10 minute patient visits when so often an hour or more is required. And which means that in order to be successful, doctors must overlook complexity rather than search for it. Alana, the unique thing here isn't that you fell down so many rabbit holes. What's unique is that you found your way out at all. All right. So this is a very blunt way of, of describing this broken medical system. And then he turns the tables back on Alana and her husband, who's also a journalist. And he says, can I ask you, uh, why is so much journalism that I read garbage? And she says that was the, the eureka moment for her because she realized, wait, we thought that our industry journalism was just unique in being so desperately broken. He's telling us that medicine is so desperately broken. What else is broken? And she says, uh, was everything in America broken? Was education, housing, farming, cities, religion, and she like she she hyperlinks pieces about these things that show. So like factory farming is what she links to. Uh, religion she links to. I forget exactly what she links to with, with religion, but she links to these things to suggest that actually there are major major problems across all sectors of our our country. And uh, and yeah, and so, so everything is possibly broken. And she explores why that is. And her dominant thesis is that we've been overcome by this this ideology, this pursuit of uh, an ideology called flatness or frictionlessness, in which the uh, the main goals are interconnectedness, um, speed, uh, and efficiency. And she ties this into, you know, mod- the, uh, modernization and the uh, efforts to, Uh, manufacture things and manufacture things in the cheapest possible way. The uh, move in the 1970s to uh, lower labor costs, not by not by supplementing labor with automation, but by replacing labor with automation and or outsourcing jobs to to have lower paid workers outside of America. Um, some really, I think, compelling ways to think about the sort of aesthetic in which we find ourselves today. And then also talks about the uh, the addiction to things like Amazon. And she doesn't mention TikTok here, but I would definitely add things like TikTok. Just this is this ability to have a frictionless experience either. The frictionless dopamine hits of the TikTok videos coming to your screen or the frictionless one shop, one click purchasing of Amazon so that something shows up on your door uh, that quickly. And when we have that, we lose the friction. But in the friction actually is where like the, the essential, the essential parts of being human uh, are formed. And in those moments, we have our characters formed. Um, and you might even say, uh, as I would, that uh, that is where virtue happens. So she laments this loss of friction and says this is a good thing. And she calls for a return to creative ways. She, rec- she calls for a return to, you know, real friendships that do not revolve around uh, narrow sighted, uh, rigid political ideologies. Um, and it's it's a it's I find it a very generally depressing piece. And then at the end, she has like two two paragraphs of sort of how we how we get out of this. And I don't know if I fully buy her narrative of how we can get out of it. But that is a piece of the piece in a nutshell, I think. But um, Andrew, did I miss any relevant things that you would add to that summary?
1: She, yeah, well, she uses, she uses this term flatness quite a bit, and yeah. I, I, think, I think I see what she means. I mean, there's this one part where she says the internet is a car that runs on flatness. And so she's very critical of, of the internet in as much as we are, I don't know how you would put it, addicted to it, yeah. I mean, integrated with it maybe even, I mean, that we can't, we can't live without it. It reminded me actually of this, um, this uh, gosh, what was it, New Yorker cartoon that I saw several years ago that shows uh, a married couple or a couple of some kind of man and a woman standing around in a kitchen, and the woman has her laptop open, and she turns to the man and says, the internet's down, we can't cook, um, which is nice. like, it's like, you know, that's like our experience, right? I mean, it, it's, it's almost like kind of, dis, it's almost sickening to yeah. think the internet is down, right? Or that you can't go about whatever like kind of virtual thing you normally do um i'm as bad as anybody i mean i i don't i'm not standing in judgment but uh i but what she said about this flatness and how we therefore then expect all of life to kind of feel like clicking from one web page to another and 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 everything needs to just sort of have this like seamlessness you know you know and therefore it's so much easier just to kind of give your will over to it you know just to sort of say I mean, give your curiosity over, let alone any, you know, moral concerns you might have or anything like that. Um, so it's no surprise that people find themselves just kind of, you know, if their particular circumstances don't conform to the flow of this system, they find themselves in, in big trouble yeah. quickly. Um, you know, she also uses this term boundarylessness. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a term that, that really resonated with me. She doesn't go into it in, in great detail, but this is something that um, that, in my mind reminded me of things like um, the work of Sir Roger Scruton and people like Mm. that. Like, you know, we've got this this sort of predicament in our world today where it seems like the further up we we go kind of not only in the ladder of being elites, but just kind of in our um, education levels, engagement with technology, all these kinds of things, the less like connected to real places we are, like the less we we understand ourselves to be bound by by geography, by you know, morality by all of these kinds of like boundaries, right. That would have, that would have like created a real structure for our existence in previous times. So, um, I, I really liked how she identified that and, um, you know, pointed at the end of her article, I think to maybe something like trying to find our way back into boundaries a, a little bit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those are good. Uh, those are good things to point out. Thanks for, for, uh, doing that. I um I was thinking about this so so on Twitter the other day I saw I think it was yesterday uh, I saw that um uh the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is planning a new planned community uh within a giant wall in Saudi Arabia um and this planned community is going to be basically built vertically so it is going to be within a giant wall and there will be houses stacked on top of each other no windows it'll be a solid facade covered with mirrors in fact on the outside um and the description of this uh, was exactly what you would expect for something that was that was very modern. You know, it's going to be uh, the closest amenity is going to be all within a five minute walk. Everything you possibly need for your entire life. Um, somehow AI was factoring in. I fig- I forget exactly how the video said AI would be featured, but AI is going to be involved in the in the planning and in the living of this uh, this ridiculous community. Um, and but the whole the whole thing was was frictionless in the way that she described it. It was frictionless. It was uh, maybe not boundaryless quite in the way she described it, but definitely frictionless. Definitely flat, and certainly not physically because it was built vertically, but flat in the sense that everything is only within a five minute walk. You wouldn't possibly have to actually inconvenience yourself more than five minutes to go to the grocery store. Uh, that would be a terrible thing indeed. Um, and everything is uh, everything is frictionless. Everything is right there for you. All the stuff delivered if you need it delivered. Um, everything convenient, uh, right when you need it. And people sometimes look at that and think maybe that's actually the, the future I want that would be living. But I look at that and think this is this is actually like a certain kind of hell. This would be terrible because there's no glory when there's no struggle. Um, there's no art when there is no, as Alana says, there's no creative waste. Like, I don't want to actually just live in a series of windowless white cubes. If uh, you know that that. Um, Or I don't want to, I don't want to just live in a place where I'm going to have everything conveniently delivered to me or within a five minute walk. If the price of that is living in a white windowless cube that looks the same exact way as my neighbors. uh, And I never have to feel uncomfortable, you know, uh, that to me sounds absolutely terrible, but that is the future that we have sort of, we, we, we sort of built for ourselves, I guess.
1: Yeah. Something that is interesting about this, Zach, is that, you know, Plans like that, or, or for that matter, even more ambitious ones, to like sort of, uh, you know, imagine everybody will be possessionless and happier, or like whatever it may be, right? In a way, it, it is speaking to a real problem that people perceive in their lives, which is, it does feel like the, the kind of struggle that we endure is kind of at times feels like maybe the wrong kind of struggle, and and here's maybe what I mean by that, like. I do, I do think there's something unnatural about the fact that I get in my car and, you know, drive on these sort of like mega highways, right, to come mm-hmm. sit in my office, right? Like there's something kind of like – something that does crush my soul a bit to do that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, it's fine. But, you know, I wonder then. I compare this sort of plan that the one, you know, that you're talking about with say like what new urbanist type people are talking about, like in a sense, like sort of harkening back to an earlier structure of how towns were organized, right. And how like communities were organized and still are maybe in places like Europe, right. Where you, you can still kind of walk everywhere you need to go and, and that kind of thing. But there's still something, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like soulful about it. There's something kind of like humane about it that, Something like a giant wall full of like white drywall or something and internet connections just doesn't, just doesn't feel like it's going to, going to give us. So, you know, it does seem like there's a real problem here, but, uh, there just must be different approaches. And maybe now is the moment to like respond in a way like, like, uh, Alana is, is talking about here. Like, uh, I love this idea of like this creative waste. Like, let's like, just try to do something, like try, try to build something and see what happens, you know, or like. Uh, you know, I don't take risks and, and, uh, make mistakes.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the idea of creative waste is something that has become, I think, antithetical to us. I, we don't want to, we don't want to do something that will not be enduring. We don't want to, we don't want to try painting something on a, on a canvas if we'll end up throwing it away because it didn't work out quite the way we wanted to. Um, you know, I, I'm a pianist, uh, Andrew, and I find myself even, even recently, like, do I want to try to learn this new piano piece? Because ultimately who's going to hear it, right? Like, Will this will this help advance my quote career or goals in any way? No, it won't. So I, well, then I have to stop myself and think like, that's not what it's about. It's about art. It's about beauty. Like no one has to no one has to attend to this beauty for it to remain beautiful. Um, and so there's there's nothing wrong with. And in fact, and not only is there nothing wrong with doing that, but actually there's something good in doing that. And that's the whole idea of creative waste. That's part of the idea of creative waste that she's getting at. I also like she mentioned this. You know, don't become tree blind. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'll bite what's tree blindness and clicked the link to tree blind that she included there and saw, um, in that a, an article, I think also in the New York times, um, about, uh, this term tree blindness, which basically refers to not knowing one type of tree from another. Uh, Andrew, I'm one of the most tree blind people you'll ever meet. And I'm not, not proud to admit that. Uh, but I look at trees and like, I can generally distinguish, you know, a maple. Well, I can certainly distinguish a, you know, a conifer from a (laughs) deciduous tree, uh, but, and, you know, maybe a maple from an oak, but beyond that, I'm pretty, I'm pretty useless. And, uh, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of trees in the world and likely where you live, there are at the very least hundreds of so this person in, says that in the Washington, area there are, you know, 300 different varieties. Um, or maybe it was in the Midwest, but it doesn't really matter. The point is there's, there's hundreds. Right. And, um, and they said, I, they said they were basically like me. They used to just not be able to identify really anything. They thought all conifers were pines, for example, and, uh, and didn't know any better. And then took some classes and learned. Oh, this is actually beautiful. And now when they go out, they can look around at the trees and look. Oh, I mean, look, look at that beautiful Fraser fir there, or look at this. I don't know red leaf maple if that's even a real tree, which I also admit I, I don't even know. But uh, the point is, the point is, the 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 fighting against tree blindness as a sort of proxy for fighting against um, obliviousness to our natural surroundings is a really important part of this uh, this as well.
1: Yeah. Isn't it funny to think like, even if you were somebody who was an expert in trees, it would just be kind of your niche, right? It would just be, it wouldn't be something that would be presumed of you just as a human being living in the world. And, you know, I think about uh, people like my father-in-law, who is uh, his whole life, he's been an avid outdoorsman. He's a hunter, fisher, you know, goes out on his boat. Um, he never went to college. He was in the military. Um, doesn't doesn't read books particularly, you know, but man, I mean, he's as smart as anybody you're going to talk to. Sounds like a fun and guy to hang out with. Yeah. Great guy. Oh, man. I mean, I love my father-in-law so much. And he's also like, if you walk around with him, he knows what every tree is. Yeah. He knows what every bird is. You know, he's just that he just, and it doesn't occur to him that that's just sort of a, you know, uh, his own particular hobby or anything like that. Is he that's happy? Just,
0: he sounds like a happy guy. Like,
1: He's a happy guy. Yeah. yeah, he is. You know, we all have our struggles in life, sure. but uh, yeah, he's a happy guy. He um, he doesn't rely. He doesn't need any anybody to entertain him. He yeah. he knows what he's about, and I just admire that about him. I admit, I'm I'm kind of a, a, a shameless indoorsman. Yeah. I, I really am. Yeah. I, I certainly enjoy, you know, being out and about. But uh, I don't I don't seek those opportunities in nature. And sometimes I feel like if I did, it would have a little bit of a of an artificial feel about it. Yep. So. It's, it's a problem.
0: Yeah. The last time I camped was, uh, when I was doing combat survival training in the air force and, uh, I think it just, it broke me, uh, from any desire to ever, you know, be camping in the wilderness again, cause that's not a fun experience to do combat survival training, <laughs> but I, I should try it again. And I should commit to, uh, to learning about trees and learning about the, the fauna around me, cause I think it would be a good thing, uh, a good thing to do for sure. All right. Anything else about this, uh, this article we should chat through.
1: I don't think so. I mean, I just uh, just want to underline the, you know, that we have this, we could call it, you know, a problem of faith and in institutions, a problem of um, a problem of leadership. She doesn't get into that a whole mm-hmm. lot in this article, but I think that's a whole other layer here. Sure. Um, that uh, I think if you just bother to kind of look around for a minute, you realize that that's a big problem in our society today. But I think that you know, this everything broken is is really great. I just want to highlight too the very very end. Um, which in particular, if our listeners are, are Christians, is something that they really ought to take to heart because, you know, uh, she says at the end, it took me a while, or she says, sometimes the task of rebuilding, of accepting what has been broken and making things new is so daunting that it can almost feel easier to believe it can't be done, but it can. And, you know, that's just a great message of hope at the end. Like, don't don't believe it. Don't believe that things can't be better. Mm-hmm. Don't believe that things have have to be the way that they are, or that we're on some kind of, you know, collision course that we absolutely cannot get off of. Um, I, I for one, maybe just because I like I like a fight from time to time, but I, uh, I I'm not ready to give up yet.
0: Yeah, that's good. I like that that closing comment. I was thinking more about this idea of flatness, and um, you know, there's a the, you, I'm sure you've heard of the. Columnist Thomas Friedman. I'm not even sure if he still writes for the New York Times, but he did for many years. If he doesn't still, and um, Friedman wrote this book, "The World is Flat." He also wrote "The Lexus and the Olive Tree." He's been a big like he's not, he's been on the globalization kick ever since people started talking about globalization in the you know '90s. And um, I think the flatness idea is interesting here, as is his his uh, his book, "The World is Flat," because the reality is the world is not flat, right? And so we've embraced this flatness aesthetic because we're we're pursuing that and. As Alana points out here, in doing so, we've embraced all these things that simply should not be. It should not be the case that we spend our entire lives staring into a a a, a, uh, a computer or a iPhone screen. It should not be the case that uh, we corrupt our systems so much that everything is broken. It should not be the case that our our companies, our our for profit companies, simply try to outsource everything to to have cheaper labor. It should not be the case that um uh should not be the case that we uh you know, look at look at automation as a way to replace human beings in the workplace. Um, and she even cites uh, somewhat presciently because this was in January 2021 before things got even as crazy as they are today, only 18 months later. But she talks about how um, even with gender, uh, the biological differences between the sex used to be the, un- the, the the sort of foundational part of the feminist movement. But instantaneously, that was replaced by the idea that not only are there numerous genders Um, but that actually the idea of a gender binary is bigoted and abusive and she cites this as flatness and i like i like the citation of flatness here because i think that that idea and the others before it that i cited uh, are rooted in this idea that this is simply not grounded in reality and we Mm -hmm. pursue it to our own detriment and so to use this to use this biological difference between the sexes example she's exactly right i mean up until five minutes ago it was accepted that there is a biological difference between men and women, and that's that something is immutable. Now we can identify differently, and we may identify differently, and prefer to be called different names or whatever. But that does not actually change the biological difference between men and women. Now we've we've thrown that out the window, and to say, for example, Leah Thomas, the 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 swimmer who is who's now the the you know male swimmer who's now swimming with females and winning medals for it, um, to say that he should not be doing that is somehow bigoted and abusive, just recognize that he has a distinct biological, or even if you say, even if you say, I will sort of indulge his self-identification and refer to him as a she, even to say she has innate advantages that she should not, that, that make it so that she should not be competing with other females, um, even that is bigoted and abusive, which is just an absolutely crazy crazy place to be, similar to believing that the, the earth was flat. Um, Uh, the earth is not flat. You know, it turns out that is actually not grounded in reality and neither are so many of our sort of fantasies today. And yet we, we shape policy based on these and we expel people from public discourse based on these. And we teach our children, as we discussed earlier with the sex ed stuff, we teach our children based on these fantasies and the world is not actually flat. So why would we, why would we be pursuing this flatness aesthetic? So there's an interesting corollary there, I think.
1: Yeah. And part of the flatness part too, right? Is that once the kind of the tipping point is arrived where the, you know, the, the elite opinion becomes something else or, or, you know, it sort of uh, transforms um, in the media or in government or politics or whatever, then the, the flatness thing then is just, well, you just like sort of change the algorithm. Right. And then it all just sort of turns over overnight. And then it's like, you know, all the, it it doesn't take any work actually to sort of, you know, uh, you know, actually sort of live with this like bizarre, thing that you are trying to kind of identify, right? Like all of a sudden, just everything looks different. And, and, and then it's like, wait a minute, wasn't it totally different yesterday? I can't remember because everything I'm looking at says it's, this is the way that it is. Right.
0: Totally. Totally. All right. Well, we'll wrap up our close read section there. Again, the link to this new house article is in the show notes. If you want to read it, and I definitely encourage you to do that, go ahead and do so. We'll be back next week with another close read if you have recommendations for what we should talk about. Uh, we are all ears, so just send us a note, Zach and Andrew at credopodcast.com. Now it's time for our final segment. This one's gonna be short, uh, but it's just simply recommendations. And in the recommendation segment, uh, we'll, we'll come, come up with a catchier name for it, I think. But uh, in this segment, we'll just share you know one, two, or three things that we've read, watched, listened to recently, um, and and commend that to our listeners for their, uh, for their edification. So Andrew, let's start with you. What is your recommendation for this week?
1: Well, my recommendation for this week is uh, comes from some research that I've been doing on a book project on European film. You know, Zach, that I'm a big movie guy, and um, I'm also a big kind of foreign language guy. So, one of my uh, specialties is uh, foreign language movies. I am kind of a champion for them. I think more people ought to watch movies from uh, European movies and, and art house movies in general. I think they explore the human condition and and sort of life on Earth and the life of the soul, even when they're made by people who are avowedly not interested in, uh, you know, adherence to any particular religion. Um, but a filmmaker that I've been doing a deep dive into lately is uh, a man named Eric Romer, who uh, was a French uh, Catholic. He was a member of the French New Wave, although he was a little older than some of the um, some of the, the most famous names of the New Wave, like Truffaut and Godard. But Eric Romare made a number of really, really brilliant films, um, most of which have to do with um, people who are in difficult moral situations um, and exploring the complexity of it, but ultimately making what we could discern to be sort of the right moral decision at the end of a process. Uh, And maybe Romare's most famous movie of all time is called My Night at Mobs, uh, which was made in 1968 it came out at a really interesting time when uh, France had gone through the May of 68 uh, turmoil, where there was sort of this huge kind of push towards like a, a left-wing revolution that mm-hmm. didn't quite happen, but it kind of like shook the society up in all kinds of different ways. But as sometimes happened, the society kind of quickly got, got that felt a little bit stale. And Romare came along with this sort of interesting moral tale uh, right at a time when it seemed like uh, the population of his country, and then it turned out to be worldwide, was kind of ready for something different. And at the heart of this movie, My Night at Mods, is this um, this question of Pascal's wager. Uh, namely, like, is it, is it the right thing to bet your life, in a sense, to bet eternity on, on having faith? Um, and because even if it turns out not to be true, it's very possible that your life will just be better anyway. So why not just have faith, right? So it explores all kinds of interesting questions related to that. Uh, it, it also explores the idea of just kind of celebrating goodness, that if you're a person of faith, if you're a Catholic, if you're a Christian, but uh, even just being a human being, um, we, we don't want to go about in the world with this sort of, um, you know, we see it in all kinds of different flavors of Puritanism, right? Both mm-hmm. kind of left wing, right wing, all kinds of different ways where people are just sort of like, you know, so afraid, really, of reality in some ways, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's this great scene where uh, the main character, Jean-Louis, is talking about Pascal, who is this very rigorous philosopher, um, you know, who, who um, was almost Calvinist in his way of kind of thinking of, like, the nature of man, right? And uh, Jean-Louis slaps the table and drinks this delicious glass of wine. And he says, see, I'm the one who says, this is good. And, uh, you know, I want to be that guy. I don't know about you, Zach, but I want to be the guy who drinks a great glass of wine and says, this is good and just finds a way to enjoy the goodness of creation. Right. So um, there's all kinds of wonderful stuff like this in all of Romare's films. uh, So I just want to highly recommend them. And and maybe a good starting point for some people would be my night at mods.
0: Is that available to stream anywhere?
1: It's available on the Criterion Channel, which mm-hmm. I subscribe to, uh, but you can probably find it in other in other places as well, or rent it pretty cheaply from Amazon or something. What's
0: the? I don't subscribe to Criterion, but I've I've thought about it. What's the price of it? Do you know?
1: It. it well, we we uh, you can subscribe monthly, and I'm not sure what the the okay. the uh, payment is for that. But we pay a subscription, which is I think $99 a year, which okay. is a little bit steep. But for someone like me, who and my wife, who both just really love kind of art house cinema and kind of. Things that you can't find, uh, you know, very readily in other places. I think it's worth every penny.
0: For sure, yeah. I mean, when you when you think about that's cheaper than uh, a Netflix subscription, uh, the the quality that you'll find in the Criterion is generally speaking uh, higher than Netflix, so it's definitely worth it.
1: I would even encourage people to just take a risk and say, hey, you know, maybe I'm not watching Netflix that much anymore anyway. Cancel Netflix, try Criterion, just do it for one year or do it for a little while and just say, Hey, give it a try.
0: I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I do think we, we often, we, we, we look at movies, not as art and simply as entertainment. And that's a problem. And Netflix is structured around this idea of movies as entertainment rather than movies as art. Um, and we should not watch movies simply to be entertained and titillated. Um, that's a great recommendation. I'm going to, I'm going to look at getting a Criterion subscription, Andrew. Um, all right, my recommendation is from the annals of the New Yorker, actually, uh, surprisingly the New Yorker, uh, you know, what's that, what's that phrase every now and then a blind squirrel finds a nut. I've actually been a fan of a lot of the New Yorkers work and I think they do, um, probably them in the Atlantic do some actually really good writing and there's certainly ridiculous pieces in, in both. Um, but sometimes there are good ones and fairly frequently there are good ones in each as well. And this is one of the good ones. This is by Emma Green. It's from May 31st, 2022. Um, friend uh, friend of the pod, Kevin, who's been on Credo before, Kevin Boschman, sent this to me uh, for my uh, my reading. And it's very interesting because the title is What the End of Roe v. Wade Will Mean for the Next Generation of Obstetricians. This was written prior to the release of the Dobbs Opinion, the, the leak of the Dobbs Opinion, published after the leak, but published prior to the release of the actual opinion overturning Roe. Um, and the opening paragraph describes a woman named Kara Buskmiller, who is an OBGYN and a consecrated virgin uh, as a Catholic in the church. And so it talks about exactly you know why she made that decision, but also talks about her discernment process and choosing a medical school and being a conscious objector to abortions and all these things. And I find that to be a, a pretty uh, fair and balanced uh, assessment of things. It, it I think, um, sort of shades towards uh, the conclusion that, you know, these abortion questions are hard, so we have to respect people's conscience. Which is not exactly my own conclusion, but um, I, it is not a, it is not a completely irrational and unhinged one. The author's Emma Green. Emma Green, speaking of the Atlantic, used to write for the Atlantic. She's she writes a lot of on a sort of religion and faith, so it's not surprising that this uh, this good one comes from her. Uh, but I think this is a great one, and I commend this to my readers to just explore. I think it is. I've talked about this previously on the podcast. I think it is important, Andrew, on the on issues, especially like abortion, to to uh, approach these with charity and to recognize that even some of our opponents on this issue um are approaching the issue from a a standpoint of misguided charity um, you know in other words they, they think that they are being loving in, in the position that they hold um, it may not be in accordance with with perfect charity but there's 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 some sort of intention there um, that is other than complete malice um, and i think that this article is a good way of exploring some of that there's also some real um real candid description here about the abortion process itself And this comes from a woman named, what was her name? Um, Sorry, let me look this up here. All right, a woman named Lisa Harris, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Michigan. She wrote a paper in 2008 that is cited by Emma in this article. And she says, quote, with my first pass of the four, so she's describing an abortion that um, she performed on a patient who was 18 weeks pregnant. Um, and she said, quote, with my first pass of the forceps, I grasped an extremity and began to pull it down. I could see a small foot hanging from the teeth of my forceps. With a quick tug, I separated the leg. Precisely at that moment, I felt a kick, a fluttery thump thump in my own uterus, she wrote. End quote. She began crying as though a message had been sent from, quote, my hand and my uterus to my tear ducts, End quote. A response, quote, unmediated by my training or my feminist pro-choice politics, End quote. Um, super candid wow. description of an abortion from, uh, from, a, an art, an outlet, the New Yorker, which is very supportive of uh, abortion rights. Uh, so I, I, commend the New Yorker and, and Emma for including that in the article. And I commend them for including the you know witness of a woman like Kara Buskmiller, um, in this article as well, because, uh, these women are out there and these, uh, these procedures are really grotesque and we should recognize that and talk about that more. It is something that we should need to talk about that we, that we have to talk about in the words of Jim Harbaugh.
1: Wow. I will have to check that out, Zach. And I just want to echo, uh, your appreciation for Emma green. She, uh, I don't always, you know, see everything exactly the way she does, but it's rare actually that someone who writes about religion for a major secular publication really understands yeah. religion, uh, the way Emma does. So yeah, yeah I, I think she does very good work.
0: Yeah. I think she, and probably Tara Isabella Burton are, um, two of the the finer ones there who might not even necessarily identify, uh, with the people that they write about, but have a, have a a pretty firm grasp of faith and the, the, the role that faith plays in people's lives. So I definitely appreciate the work of each for sure. All right. Well, that concludes it. So those are the three segments. Hopefully uh, our listeners enjoyed it. Andrew, thanks for joining me. It was super fun. Looking forward to, uh, next week. And, um, once again, to our listeners, if you have comments, questions, suggestions for future close reads, uh crazy crazy things that happen for uh or even suggestions of things that could have possibly happened for our misinformation stuff or recommendations that you want to pass along to us and we can in turn pass along in our next recommendations uh segment let us know please send us a note zach and andrew at credopodcast.com or you can just send me a note zach at com. that would work as well all right andrew any final words
1: looking forward to this zach we've been uh Planning for a long time to like have a regular uh, a regular outlet together, so really looking forward to carrying this forward.
0: Yeah, I think it'll be great. Looking forward to it, and to our listeners, God bless you.